Oh hot damn, it's a little shorty. Synesthesia, a movie podcast featuring Jason Michaelich and Jim Hickox, begins now. When's it gonna start? Alright, I'm setting the timer. This is how the episode starts. Yeah. (laughs) And go. You can hear some of my dishes rattling. Alright, we're doing... This is our first official Little Shorties, right? I think so. I mean, we've done a couple already, so I don't know what makes them unofficial, but I think it is the first time we've gone in with the intent. Yeah, I think just that we're going to slap up that sweet art you made with the little... Oh, right, right. That's going to make it official. That changes the, the distinction. I well, I'm 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 inaugurating little shorties by recording while I do the yeah, dishes. I think that's so good. Everybody listening on their headphones, have fun with that. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully everyone's listening while you know, like running a giant dish machine in the back of a restaurant somewhere. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. So it'll just or or maybe that's like how they normally listen, but now they're on vacation. So yeah. it just kind of gives them a sense of yeah. familiarity. Feel like they're at their job when they're not. That's what everyone likes, right? Yeah, it's either this or talk while holding a yelling baby. So I don't know what people prefer. <laughs> I mean, babies are cute. He wouldn't be yelling unhappily, but he would just be like hollering sure. Sure. a lot. <laughs> um. So Jim, hello. You came up with the topic for this so little short. You. This is because you just read a. This thing. is a thing you've refed at me in the past, um, or in conversations or whatever. Um, that I. Uh, just kind of nodded along to, and then never, I, I never read this essay until uh, two months ago when I was, you know, I'm always kind of looking for more, uh, articles to, to drop on my class, even though they hate them. So I've actually, I pulled them all out this semester. I need to find new reads. Um, but I finally read th- this. It's Manny Farber's classic, uh, termite art versus white elephant art, uh, which, yeah, I didn't read until like a month or two ago. And when I was reading it, it's only like four pages or something. It's a quick read. Um, but I was like, oh, this is... Yeah, it was originally just like a newspaper yeah. column. That he was and it's, writing. what, like from the 70s? I don't actually know. I'm I have not no even, context. Not even. It's like... Oh, really? Okay, so it's like from the 50s, we'll say. Uh, and it's And it sort of encapsulates, I feel like most of the ways that you and I tend to think and talk about movies, um, not like, you know, in a complete and, and whole way, but it's it's the only thing that I've ever read, I think, where I just wholeheartedly agreed with all of it. And it's like, this is, there are all these ways that I feel about film and art that I very infrequently see reflected in critical thought about those things. Um, and mm-hmm. And... Uh, Manny Farber just like says them all. He just he just bops them all out in this one little essay. Um, so I was just really excited about it because I feel like uh, I feel like <laughs> I feel like Farber gets it. <laughs> okay, so so Farber Farber was uh, I mean, I'm going to do the 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 quick like bio sketch without sure, any sure. research and without actually yeah. looking at anything because my hands yeah. are full of dishes. But he was a he was a newspaper columnist. He was a New York City guy. Um, and he, he was a regular film critic for one of the magazines. I can't remember now. Um, well, I mean, not one of the magazines, one of the newspapers. Um, but he, 
he was uh, he's like pretty well revered as one of the the more interesting idiosyncratic um, and sort of tough minded okay. critics. Uh, also, he's just a terrific writer, and he's a yes. joy to read. Um, so, so that's the that's the quick and dirty on Manny Farber. Uh, if you want to know more, I think David Bordwell just like published a book about him. Uh, go read <laughs> Bordwell's that. book just says so, like uh, Manny Farber drew eighty seven squares over the course of his life. Just, <laughs> he just counts shapes. <laughs> we dug up his skull to measure. <laughs> I'm going to start a rumor that David Bordwell's books are all just phrenology bits. <laughs> they are. He just touches. He just touches. All right. So give us a rundown, Jim, because we're going to keep this one nice and tight. We're going to we're going to make this a, a genuine synesthesia so little shorty. So what's he, the he basically? What's the nut? What's the what is this termites? What's termites? Look sure. Let's break it. Let's break it down. The so he's breaking art into two <laughs> categories, right? Termite art, white elephant art. Uh, and he's saying termite art is um, is art that sort of gnaws at its boundaries, uh, whereas white elephant art he compares to to items you would buy at a white elephant. Right? It's, it's like a like an ornate uh, porcelain vase, like a beautiful thing you would get, and then it would sit in your house somewhere forever, uh, and you would uh, yeah, like a like a wealthy just be there uh, a state sale yeah, exactly. And so he he's basically talking about I, the, the like the meat of the thought I think to my to my reading is that he's saying artists he starts off talking about painters but then moves into film largely um, but artists broadly have have their own sort of particularities and their own interests and the things that make them them th- that therefore make their art their art uh, and in order to try to make some something that is a masterpiece they have to compromise that right they they um are driven to make a thing driven we're all like subconsciously driven to make a thing because it's in us fighting to get out right but then you're also culturally driven as an artist to make a thing that will be good right with like a capital g um and so we started talking about that competing those competing impulses and about uh how there's uh it's interesting he starts off when he moves to film saying that that there's always sort of a termite impulse in film um or that there tends to be more of a termite impulse in film but then but then he sort of moves on and talks about how like in uh in in something like a film right where it's like being funded by a studio and there are so many people involved and there's so much oversight and somebody is so scared about losing money on it um you can't it's very rare for a thing to go full termite right um he says, actually, when he first started talking about movies, I'm going to read you a quote. He says, uh, good work usually arises where the creators seem to have no ambitions towards guilt culture, but involved in a kind of squandering beaverish culture that isn't anywhere or for anything. Right. And he's talking about like <laughs> Laurel and Hardy and stuff. He's talking about like people who are who are unconcerned with making like a good film. Right. Which which I feel like is. You know, whenever people are like, oh, it's Oscar season, I'm like, who cares, right? That just means we're going to get a yeah. bunch of movies that are trying to be, like, capital G good. And I don't care about them. <laughs> um, I'm much more <laughs> excited about movies that don't care about being good. And I, I feel like that's, I don't know, I feel like that's what he, uh... here, wait, let me read you one more quote. He's talking about um, yeah. uh, paintings at this point, and he says, uh, 
The special delight of each painting tycoon is usually squandered in pursuit of the continuity, harmony involved in constructing a masterpiece. It's that, right? Yeah, it's like that, this idea. That was the line I was. I just grabbed my book. That's the line I was trying to find because he also just he also says uh, the very first line, right? He says most of the feckless, listless quality of today's art can be blamed on its drive to break out of a tradition while irrationally hewing to the square, boxed-in shape and gem-like inertia of an old, densely wrought European masterpiece. So good. So it's that. It's that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think you sum up the differences pretty well. I, and, and what I find interesting is that right in the beginning, he's talking about um, not just the differences between termite art and white elephant art. Because what I, I think importantly, when he talks about white elephant art, he, he is generally talking about like whole works or sort yes. of tendencies within whole works. Yes. Whereas when he's talking about termite art, he's almost never actually talking about a full a work. like yeah. a, there is in, and in some ways it almost seems maybe maybe we can ponder on this but the, in some ways it almost seems like impossible to have an actually full termite work sure sure because of the what's involved um he's what he's talking about are like tendencies within works moments within yeah. works or, or passages or spaces in paintings or you know uh sequences in films or certain performances in films yeah. that are pursuing monomaniacally something of immediate and particular interest, not necessarily something that can then be sort of brought back out to like larger layered symbolic, uh, you know, interwoven masterpiece effect. Yeah. Yeah. Things that are just, they're like, it's like small elements that are sort of just doggedly pursuing their own artistic end. With with no broader interest in uh, in like making the whole thing a cohesive uh, yeah like a masterpiece yeah so I I agree with you then like just to kick off that that Farber is in some ways like you know he's he's the God Farber he's the he's sort <laughs> he of a proto the he they're no they're no Farber to our style but there's a Manny Farber <laughs> sort of at the at the head there he he is predicting. And and maybe you know a lot of the ways that you and I do think about and talk about film because yeah. we've, we've talked a lot about you know all all first book we talked about these the difference between works that or or artists that are sort of self consciously pursuing uh, control over yeah. works yes and and he talks a lot of in the essay about artists who are afraid of the unpredictability of their own work. And I think we've touched yes. on that a lot. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. and, and we're become more interested or we perk up when somebody seems to be pursuing something that doesn't lend itself to the kind of safe, uh, praiseworthy whole yeah. construction. Uh, right. So much like as just I... as like pursuing an idea or an interest or a feeling or an experience to yes. see what they can make out of it. I, like, could care less about a good, even-keeled movie, you know? I'm interested in a yeah. movie that is trying things and, like, maybe failing and maybe succeeding sometimes. 
right? Yes. And I feel like that's... Yeah, yeah he's specifically, when he's talking about the filmmakers being scared of things, he says they have a fear of the potential life, rudeness, and outrageousness of a film, right? Which is a little bit of a mean-spirited way to say that. But it's also, those are, like, the things that can be good about art, right? Is I mean, I also think that it's maybe... <laughs> exactly what we've said about like david fincher oh I'm, yeah no like, absolutely. I, think if we went back, I think we might have even used those words i'm sure i'm sure we have used all those words because those are exactly the things that that people who are like trying to exert maximum control are afraid of, of like life breaking through right of any kind of yeah. uh and, reality and you know or I don't i'll know. bring it back uh even just uh because you know i we we have our punching bags but i'll i'll even talk about a filmmaker who i like Sure. Uh, although I, honestly, he talks about some filmmakers that I like. We can maybe get he into does, some of his. He, he spends a examples. long time on Antonioni, right? Like being yeah. like Antonioni's just like beating these actors to death and like really heavily leaning on the symbology. And it's and all of that is true. You read it and you're like, yes, I agree with all of this. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to enjoy La Ventura, right? It's it's uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I partially I, being, agree. being a white elephant art doesn't make a thing intrinsically bad, right? Like, uh, uh, Magnolia is, like, pretty much white elephant art, right? But, uh, I like like Magnolia. Well, that's the interesting question, too, right? Is, like, what... Because he uses these terms, but he doesn't really exactly define them. No. And I I think you're right that you can get hung up thinking, like, oh, termite art good, white elephant art bad, and then you start scrambling to define your favorites as termites and, you know, things you don't like as white elephant. Um, I I do think there is some some way of thinking, like, like I I think that uh, as perceptive a critic as he could be and as good an argument as he could make, I think Mm -hmm. there is, like, a fundamental difference between, say, like, Tony Richardson or Francois Truffaut, who he also bags on. Yes. In in the essay, there's a difference between those guys and somebody like Antonioni. Like I, yeah. I, I think that I think that what he says about Antonioni is partially true, but mm-hmm. I think one of the things he's missing, or maybe one of the things that he doesn't care for or doesn't care about, is that Antonioni, I think, is not making his films uh, sort of more obvious. There's one one of the lines in the essay is he's saying that what what the white elephant tendency really does is sort of magnify and blow up the the point of something so that yeah. you can you can really get it. The, the way I would put it, this isn't the way he puts it, so maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but the way I would put it is that like white elephant art, you know, makes itself self-consciously meaningful in a way that the audience is sort of uh, flattered by. That they sure. can they yes. can pat themselves on the back for recognizing the meaning. Yeah, and and the filmmaker is then also secure in knowing that the audience is not going to miss the meaning. Um, yes, I don't think that really describes Antonioni. Like I I I get where it sometimes seems like it does, and maybe in some films more than others. But Antonioni to me is pursuing much more of a sort of a strategy of alienation. To put yes. you into a very strange place where meaning is everything feels fraught with meaning, but the meaning itself is very undetermined. That's and fair. and I think that Antonioni actually does put you into at his best. Again, I'm not saying yeah. every single thing, but at his best. Um, and I, I think in something like La Note or La Note, um, mm-hmm. he does put you in a place that isn't comfortable, that is actually rather frightening. 
um, and feels rather frightening for him. You know, he's sort of suspending some of the meanings and and the experiences, and he is engaging in a certain degree of uh, trust fall with yeah. with the film that that other filmmakers, uh, particularly like somebody like Truffaut, is not. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think so. Wait, but, I think but that's, Farber that's is to some like degree quibble, reacting. Right? Like, sorry, what? I said, but that's just like a quibble, right? Like, it's not really. Yeah. It's not really dealing with like his Farber's whole idea. It's just like, well, you know, I think he got Antonioni a little bit wrong, but he also got him a little bit yeah. right. Yeah, of course. And I, I think he's somewhat reacting to, like, the things that he's listing, uh, for the most part, are sort of, like, a little chaotic, right? Whereas Antonioni is, like, uh, it, it, the thing that sort of makes him interesting is that alienness, and it is exacted in a sort of clinical way, right? Yes. I mean, it's like yeah. Kubrick a little bit, right? Yeah. Where it's like, th- there is a strangeness there, and there is something interesting about it, for sure, um, yeah. but it is done in a way that is very severe and in control. And I think Farber is sort of reacting to that. And and I sort of half take back what I said about Magnolia also for the same reason where it's like, I think when he's sort of breaking down this idea of the white elephant art, it's like, um, it's a, it's putting craft over everything else, right? Like a super well sculpted, sculpted porcelain thing that isn't really art. You know, it's just a beautiful object that, like, you're never going to look at or feel moved by. That's yeah. that's like what a white elephant thing is, right? Yeah. What, what Clement um, Greenberg would so call like, kitsch as opposed to art. Would call uh, what? Would call kitsch as opposed to art. Oh, it's another yeah. essay we should do in a, in a shorty is Clement Greenberg's avant-garde versus kitsch. But m- move I'll on. Check that out. Um... Sorry, I didn't mean no, to no, interrupt no, you. Sure. I, no, no, no. It's I, fine, I'm it's fine. just interrupting you with with dumb references. Um, no, no, it sounds good. I'll read it. Um, yeah, I was just gonna say it's 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 craft is is above well, yeah, all, it's, and it's, you were rethinking. It's the focusing goal. on craft over meaningfulness, right? And and so like this is an outdated reference, but something like the king's speech, right? That to me yeah. is like full white elephant. They're like, look oh, at yes. this thing we did. We did a very good job, and you're like, yeah, yes. you did a very yeah. good job. I who who could ever care about this, right? Um, whereas something like Magnolia, I think is, I think has termites in it, right? I think it is, I think it has the overall shape of that. It is incredibly well crafted, right? Yeah. Um, but it's also doing some things, right? Um, well, like for example, I think Magnolia is much more termite or has, has, has more termites in it than say either Boogie Nights or The Master. Yes, 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 yes. The master, I would say, for me, for my read, full-on white elephant. Yeah, I I could defend, like, certain things as as being more than others, but, like, I don't know. One of the things, I I think Magnolia is actually, I'm glad you brought it back up, because I thought that was a really good sort of case study for what we're talking about, because I I think there is an aspect of Magnolia, a big aspect, that it, it does, it is sort of, white elephant in that it it does at the end of the day it's trying to hang together and yeah. sort of you know produce this huge meaningfulness around yes. an important subject um i but it's doing it in a way that is so particular that i yeah. think there are not not throughout but there are times in the film where where Anderson more than in other films, except maybe like Punk Trump Love, is risking mm-hmm. losing the audience because he wants to pursue a particular, yes. not even a particular idea, but like a particular feeling or particular like mode of presentation or just something yeah. that he he wants to have happen. Um, and and that's the, the the termite impulse, right? It's the I'm going to chew yes. through this thing, 
I'm going to move through this thing. Yeah. And maybe you stop yeah, doing that that's... long enough to like not make the house fall down, but it's still there. Right. Yeah, he's still putting a hole in the wall. I think that's why I thought of it is that I I feel like having watched, I think, all of his movies, maybe maybe most at least, uh, I feel like P.T. Anderson is a man at odds with these two things. Right. I feel like his... I feel like his intellectual drive is very much to make white elephant things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like he subverts himself in spite of himself sometimes. And I think I just feel that way because I think Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love are very much outliers in, in his filmography. <laughs> um, well, I feel like he's trying to make like big, well-made, kind of boring movies that have something to say, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but and that a couple does, of times he's like done something genuinely weird in the in the pursuit of that. That does really cut to the to the heart of what Farber is saying, right? Because, like I said, he, he starts right off the bat with talking about not as, as two, actually two different kinds of arts, but as a tension within art, an attention almost yeah, within absolutely. any art. And really, if you can go so far as to say. If you're saying that, let, let me let me go to the second sentence, right? Because the first sentence is where he posits that tension, <laughs> but then he he says something really interesting in the second sentence. Where he goes, uh, "This is when he's starting out. He's talking about painting. It says advanced painting, by which he means you know the high art painting, um, yeah. you know of, of the day. This is oh, and the date's right here. This is 1962. Oh, um, great. Advanced painting has long been suffering from this burnt out notion of a masterpiece." breaking away from its imprisoning conditions toward a suicidal improvisation, threatening to move nowhere and everywhere, niggling, omnivorous, ambitionless, yet within the same picture paying strict obeisance to the canvas edge, and without favoritism, the precious nature of every inch of allowable space. So when he's characterizing this tension, and again, maybe it's just because I I like... um, Instead of cat, I, I tend to like instead of sort of categorizing things as ideas, I like to talk about the uh, the the motion between categories or like ideas in motion. Sure. And so I I really like focusing on this idea that that art almost as a whole, like by by saying advanced painting, he's he's already saying like painting that is interesting to begin with. Like we're interested sure, in sure. this. We might be interested in it and then ultimately decide that it's failing, but it's interesting because sure. it it's trying to do something. And what it's trying to do is break away from this, these imprisoning conditions. But I, I don't know. I, I maybe I'm just sort of creating a straw man. But I feel like your one's tendency when thinking about like breaking out of imprisoning conditions would be that you're breaking out into freedom, and that that is necessarily a good thing. Sure. But he he calls it a suicidal improvisation, threatening <laughs> to move nowhere and everywhere. And I think that's a really important observation because even though he's writing this little, you know, screed about white elephant art and, and sh- sort of championing the termites, he also is coming at it with an awareness that you can't be all termite. Like, you you just can't do it. Sure. So even though yeah. what's most interesting and what's most alive is the termite impulse to break out, if all you have is breaking out, if all you have is this suicidal improvisation, I, the, the invocation of nowhere and everywhere just reminds me of the sort of the idea that when you really at their most extreme there's no difference between stasis and chaos because if everything is moving, there's no figuring sure. ground. There's no difference, right? right? So if everything is moving, it's the same as if absolutely nothing is moving because there's no sure. distinction to be made. So I don't know. I, I, that, that's what's most interesting to me, right? Because then you're stuck. You can't say, oh, I like this because it's termite art. I don't like that because it's a white elephant sure, art. Sure, of course. You're, you're stuck looking for the termiteness in a world of white yeah. elephants. Everything's a white yeah, elephant. Yeah, of course. Everything's and a white elephant. And then it's just how... 
how much of the termites chewing within it. And is it yeah. so much that it falls apart? And so it's sort of an interesting mess or what is that sweet spot mixture where it's so full of termites, but then it somehow holds its shape and you sure. know, that, that kind of marvelous balancing act. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Cause every, there, there are definitional boundaries. He references them a few times like this, the, the square, right. Yeah. Which, which is true in painting and in film, right. We talk, you know, it's, there's, it is part of the definition of what makes a movie is this boundary, right? It's in a rectangle. Um, and, and it exists for some amount of time, right? There are, there are boundaries that are, that you can't transpass, transpire, no, trans, <laughs> transgress upon, yeah. um, and still be a movie, right? Right. Um, and so there is, you know, in addition to those, there are, there are other, like, uh, folk ways, right? There are, like, uh, conditions that we expect to have met in a film. And that's sort of what he's talking about, is sort of, like, fighting against that. But but it, everything, like you just said, everything has to be some kind of white elephant or some kind of, like, constructed object. Yeah. And then it's just what within that are you doing that is that is fighting against. He, in his in his, like, definition, he tries to define very vaguely uh white termite or termite art he says that <laughs> yeah. uh uh it, um there's it's there's no sign that the artist has any object in mind other than eating away at the immediate boundaries of his art the immediate boundaries of his art and turning these boundaries into the conditions of the next achievement yeah. right which is exactly it's just like you get past that boundary and then there's just another boundary yeah. right there right there's always more wall there's always more wall and you're just sort of expanding the cavern within those walls that allows you more freedom to move around next time right it's not about reshaping things or rethinking things it's just about like elbowing out a little bit more room for yourself for the next project yeah in that way it also is a very and, and you can also feel this in the way he he sort of leans on the adjective european a few times is that this is a very american yeah. work right this is a yes. very american essay and so much so that you're talking i don't know why i didn't think of it earlier maybe i did and i forgot but it, it's basically a, a rewrite of Emerson's essay Circles, which is a an essay in which, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the you know, great transcendentalist thinker and, and American essayist, the, the conceit of circles is essentially the, you know, human energy, the 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 um the interesting or useful uh not useful in terms of like practical useful, but like the valuable expression of human energy is to essentially draw a circle to draw a bigger sure. circle than than the one you found sort of like encompass as much as possible okay. but then once you've done that you're in a circle and you have to draw another one <laughs> and that it, and that's the the sort of um you know uh, almost uh like proto dialectical way of thinking of like you have to keep moving you have to keep <laughs> reacting sure. and expanding upon you can't just find a settled idea and go oh yes that's a good one i'll stick with that it's like no you have to right you have to keep moving. You have to keep expanding and, and drawing a, a bigger circle around yourself or the next person comes and draws a circle around your circle and you find yourself, Oh my goodness. Like they saw yeah. further than I did. They went outside of, I did now they couldn't have done that if my circle wasn't there to draw around it, but you had to do it. Sure. Um, so it, it's, it's sort of a, a similar, um, similar sentiment that Farber has that like, you know, just replace drawing a yeah. circle for, for eating out of the boundaries. Right. But then once you've done that, yeah, exactly. you've made new boundaries. Somebody else needs to eat out around or, or, or even like shrink back in as, as like a radical sure. idea. Right. Like I'm going to, I'm going to leave those boundaries alone. I'm going to shrink all the way down to the center of this little spot. And I'm just going to focus in on yeah. here. 
you know, the, so it is this, yeah, very, very American idea of, uh, ever expanding, um, you know, ever, ever pushing outward, maybe, maybe regardless of how good or moral or like, <laughs> or, or, or otherwise valuable that expansion is, we, our national mythos and national identity is well, built <laughs> on expanding. Right, always push out. It's Manny Farb Destiny. Right? <laughs> um, but it, that's interesting, right? Because it puts it at tension with like, like European traditions. Obviously, there there are artists doing the same thing. I, I think he's right that this is always what sure. artists do. Um, yeah. Well, like half of his examples are are European. European. Yeah, more, it, more than half of his. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because because I'm I'm sort of thinking about this as this very American idea, but he is talking about a lot of Europeans. But then the the calculus for European art is in some ways different. Like in some ways it's not because so many of our American traditions are borrowed yeah. from European traditions, but yeah. we have the sort of mythological break of the Atlantic Ocean and the founding of a country yeah. and to sort of separate us from that. Um, and obviously, like I say, it's mythological. It, it's not, yes. <laughs> not not historical. But in the idea of American art, we have that that sense, and that feeds into artists' ideas of themselves and artists' ideas of their own art. Whereas European artists are, no matter how radical they are, and you know, oftentimes more radical than Americans, are always still, mm-hmm. you know, embedded physically and socially within sure. the within those traditions, much closer. You know, they're, they're much closer at hand. Yeah. They're, they're much more present. So maybe it, maybe it would involve a different kind of nibbling at the boundaries than Americans would. I'm not sure exactly where to go with that, but it just occurred to me. We also There's also, like, a big difference in the... And I don't know how this plays into anything at all, or how it's relevant. But, <laughs> but there is also, with art, we're the only first world... Is it is it rude to say first world? Has that been... Do we have a replacement? Developed that, world? I, honestly, I don't know what. Uh, um, I feel like there must be a better alternative. Global North. I there's a lot of different alternatives, but I honestly, this is just me copying to my own ignorance. I honestly don't know which yeah. one is more polite. Yeah, yeah, me either. I'm not going to say more. Whatever correct, the polite version of, of that is, they're all just made up. But whatever, sure, they're all polite. yeah. Whatever the most polite version of that is, all of the countries that fit that category, except the U.S. Uh, have money for art, right? Yeah, uh, we're we're we are exclusively market driven. Yes, f- for art, and I think that that also drives some. I mean, I don't know exactly what it drives, but it drives something, right? It, it there is some kind of cultural shift there in terms of the quality of art. Uh, I'm not saying like higher quality. I'm saying like quality in its in its of what it's trying uh, to do. Yeah, like what it what yeah, exactly. it looks like. Just qualitatively, there it's is some difference. I don't know what it yeah. is. Um, but it's definitely there. Yeah, for sure. Um, although it's interesting because he also makes reference to like, uh, I, I can't remember if it's this essay or other essays, but he definitely talks about like, uh, you know, certain European films that, that we think of now as these sort of art house classics. He talks about them as money makers sure. and it might oh, just be his New York milieu of like, that's actually what's selling tickets. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, the West village. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's really there's, funny. Yeah. Interesting things that, Coming, I have to. I'd have to go back and read more to to be able to pull it out. Um, For sure. Maybe maybe we should just finish off with because uh, he finishes off the essay mm-hmm. 
um, sort of, and he's he's done this in more than it just kind of peters out at the. End. It kind of peters out at the end, but but he he sort of makes a feint towards uh, blaming Citizen Kane for all of this, which is <laughs> he does do that. Who's calling my phone at this hour? <laughs> oh, hold on, it's Lucy. Yeah. Hello. I guess they need something in the other room. Yeah, here I come. I'll be right there. I'll be right back. I'm going to pause the timer. (laughs) (laughs) We've been joined. Indeed. Look at that little dude. Yeah. Is he still asleep or is he looking like you? His eyeballs are closed. Uh, he's sleeping. He just wasn't happy laying down in the bed, so now I'm holding him. Um, <laughs> let me start the timer again, though. Um, so he he ends it, uh, you know, by sort of bringing up an idea that he, he references in other uh, essays, too, <laughs> which is basically kind of uh, gesturing towards blaming Citizen Kane for the yes, evils yes. of <laughs> a film art. Um, which I love, but um, since this is, I, I assume, the only Farber essay you've read, um, yes. maybe what did you make of, of his sort of drive-by <laughs> bashing of Citizen <laughs> Kane towards the end of the essay <laughs> and its, its yeah, connection? Like, like when he calls him about. exciting but hammy? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I honestly, <laughs> it just, it felt like... It feels like the end of this essay kind of just crumbles underneath him. He, like, comes in swinging with all these ideas and then talks about termite stuff for a little while in a way that's really gratifying to me. Uh, And then he just spends two pages taking swings at Antonioni and and Truffaut, which I, like, sort of enjoy, but also don't get as much out of. And then by the end, I was just, it just feels like it kind of, like, I don't know. It's like he's uh, running out of ground underneath himself, and I wasn't yeah. wasn't totally sure why he was taking a swing at Citizen Kane. He ate the um, core out of the elephant, and it just fell in on top of him. He, he reached the limits of his own termite fascination, yeah. and he just he chewed right out of, of like a coherent. <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like it, right? <laughs> um, no, I, I do think it's an interesting swing, though, because he he kind of he doesn't call came necessarily like he, he he sort of blames it but also holds it as distinct from what he's talking about because he says that well sure because he's like it does it sort of breaks away from naturalistic storytelling and then 10 years later other people do too <laughs> yeah yeah and he's very i mean that's one thing that that i think farber doesn't represent us so much is that he is very interested in naturalistic storytelling and sort of the core yeah. competency of a film which is interesting because yeah it's nothing up until there told me that Right. Yeah. The only he talks a little bit about John Wayne in I don't remember which uh, like a later John Ford movie. The Man where, of Shared Liberty Balance. Yeah, yeah. Where John Wayne is just like kind of too old to be doing it still, and is like just kind of be just being a genuine old man, right? And like kind of moving slowly and and lean in his chair in a real hipster way, according to Farber. Um, which I guess reading it with that lens now, I can like sort of see that what he's looking for there is some attempt at realism but he also like talks really well of laurel and hardy you know which are there's nothing 
real about Laurel Hardy. You well, know, they're I think doing the difference between between realism and naturalism, right? Like he's not so interested in realism, but things that sort sure. of scan as as naturally human and and dig like Laurel in. and Hardy. Well, I, I think within his framework they do because what you're looking at are like very uh, human foibles, and they have a very uh, sort of um, effective character to them. I'm reminded, okay. I, I can't remember who, but I'm, I'm reminded of somebody comparing like Chaplin and Keaton to Laurel and Hardy and favorably for Laurel and Hardy that they were more like humanistic and telling more human stories. Whereas Keaton and Chaplin sure. are more show offy and technique based. Sure. Um, I don't fully agree with, but you know, that, that idea. I can, I can and see I, the kernel of that. And, yeah. and I, I think that's probably what Farber's reaching for with Laurel and Hardy is that I, right. I think they even say like he, he says that they, they give a, like an examination of a particular kind of like working sure. class human experience in the film he's talking about. And, yeah. I, and I think that's what he's most interested in. And, and it is something that mm. I am interested in. It's one of the strands sure. of film that most excites me, which is not necessarily purely naturalistic, but I don't know, like really digging into a human experience without trying sure. to convert it into uh, like a symbol or move it into a metaphorical space, like really digging into the, the, the ebbs and flows and fluctuations of like the surface of, of you know human interactions. That is something yeah. that I think film can do really well and doesn't yeah. do very often. Often, yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of the things that I'm most interested in, like mumblecore actually for. Sure. Yeah, and that, yeah. that, you know, to bring it back to one of our, our you know ongoing threatened topics for a show. <laughs> um, but it isn't the the catch all or the be all for for what I think film can do. Of course. Um, but but I think his sort of mini history of film that he gives in like three sentences is that like film was like the preponderance of film was naturalistic storytelling that you mm-hmm. would get some practitioners really, really interested in something so much so that they would turn it into art. And sure. then Wells came along and taught everybody how to turn it into a self, you know, a self-conscious collection of symbols and, sure. and metaphorical images completely abstracted away from naturalistic experience and right. now you know in 1962 he's seeing these films that are seemingly naturalistic storytelling but they have all of these techniques that blow things right. up or move them into a metaphoric register in ways yeah. that are just you know to him are just sort of like pedantic childish and and yeah. i can't yeah. disagree with Which him on i that mostly agree with point. Him. Yeah. yeah so well, it's i think the other thing that i sort of found interesting as i was just rereading it a minute ago is that it it definitely touches on a lot of things that are like the things they teach you in film school to do, which is exactly that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Where they're like, you want these little human moments, but they all have to be part of a finely we- woven mesh where everything comes together and everything has like a big meaning, right? Like yeah. that's exactly what you are taught. And that's exactly what, you know, most film festivals are looking for, which like shouldn't matter except that that's what decides who makes the next movie uh, is, is, you know, you have to be like successful at Sundance in order to get the offer to do a Marvel movie. Right. Um, so like in a practical sense, again, in this American market, uh, it does, it very much matters what like Sundance is excited about. And Sundance is very much excited about that kind of movie. Right. That, um, that is also take swings at Sundance unnecessarily. No, but... I'm, I'm into it. I'm into it. I mean, I was going to say it, it also matters if you're just sitting in one of those festivals watching endless Especially oh, short yeah. films that are just doing it over and over and over again, and it's just I have you, I've I have so sat painful. through Sundance films. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been there, 
and I've sat through movies, and they're all just <laughs> insufferable. Uh, but it's it is a funny kind of punchline it's to the, the whole thing. The least fun film festival. Yeah, it's true. Would just just what you said is that you have to do well at Sundance. Yeah, and, and it used to so it used to be you need to do well at Sundance so that you can get like the next film you want to make adapting some like sure. literary you know bestseller or, or well-reviewed book to the screen yeah now what you said is you have to do well at sundance to get a marvel movie like that's the yeah. best punchline yes. to the whole thing that's right the like, current career path what white elephant art that has turned into is like can yeah. can you be the the like hip young socially conscious filmmaker to thinking figure out how to make i don't know <laughs> the, the vision and the scarlet witch into a yeah, David exactly. Lynch movie, like what, whatever right. it is people are talking about right now, fucking nonsense. Yeah. Um, but it, it, yes. it, it is one of the things that I always come away from this essay thinking about is that, you know, I, I'm with Farber. I, I'm, I'm on the side of the termites, but yeah. I wouldn't mind if people had a little bit more white elephant in their heart too, just in terms of ambition. <laughs> like sure, trying to make something yeah. that has more, more lasting value. Uh, or sure. or just even m- more momentary value than, I don't know, sure. a, like an Avengers movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not even like a white elephant at that point. Yeah. It's like a it's like a McDonald's Happy Meal toy. Yeah. It's like whoever the whoever the rock critic was who said, if I could have seen Bruce Springsteen it's, coming, I would have been easier on Bob Dylan. <laughs> I feel like yeah, if, if yeah, Farber exactly. could peek into the future, he'd be like, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> this is well crafted and meaningless and <laughs> yeah. not like made exactly well enough and meaningless yeah i complained about jules and jim and now i have iron man <laughs> yeah. 3 yeah i to be fair iron man 3 is one of the better marvel movies i haven't seen it i don't it's trust a, shane black it's... all right there's the timer all right that's it i guess close it up see you next time everybody Um, We'll never see anyone. Synesthesia Little Shorties are produced by Iguana Donald Studios and distributed by Split Tooth Media. Featuring music by The Cocktails, courtesy of Tight Ship Records. Theme music by Soft Healer. Synesthesia is recorded at the end of a short pier after a long walk. David Boardwell's books are all just phrenology bits. <laughs> they are. Synesthesia.